First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 9 that was just read for us. Uh, we are continuing today in our study of the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, but since chapter 9 is really the beginning of a new section in this book, we're also starting a new series today uh, called Have It Your Way. And, uh, you know, in our culture, I think we're used to having it our way. Maybe when this uh, commercial for Burger King came out in like the 1970s, that was a a novel concept uh, that you could get uh, a burger any way that you wanted it instead of just the way that it always came. But by now, I mean, we expect that, don't we? I mean, we expect that when we go to McDonald's or, or Burger King, we can get our, our burger, our chicken sandwich or whatever. We, we want to get it the way we want it. And I know uh, because of that, uh, you know, ordering at a drive through is very challenging for my family because everybody wants to have it their way, right? And so I'm ordering my wife her chicken sandwich with no sauce of any kind. I'm ordering uh, chicken nuggets for one child. I'm ordering plain cheeseburgers for a couple of others. I'm ordering for one of mine. He wants uh, just cheese and pickle only. And uh, so everybody wants to have it their way. And, you know, maybe when it comes to, to food, uh, it's not so terrible that we like to have it our way, as long as we don't do like some people I've seen on the news recently who jump over the counter and beat people up when they don't make the food the way that you ordered it. But the problem is it, it isn't just that way with our food, that really we're that way with all of life, that, that in our prideful and stubborn and sinful hearts, we, we like to have it our way with everything. We want it all our way. That's how Israel was when it came to their leadership. They wanted it their way. And we saw last time in 1 Samuel chapter 8 that the elders of Israel basically demanded of the prophet of God, Samuel, that he would make them a king so that they could be like all of the other nations that were around them. And even though Samuel didn't like the idea, And even though they were basically saying to God, God, we don't want you anymore to be our king. We want to have a human king like the other nations. In spite of all of that, when Samuel prayed and asked God what God would have him do, God said to Samuel to give the people what they wanted to let them have their king. Basically, God was saying, all right, have it your way. And so today... And in the next few weeks, we're going to see how that worked out for them when they got to have it their way, when they got to have the tall and handsome king that they always wanted. But let's pray before we go any further. Father, we do thank you for your word today. And Father, even as we think about the sinfulness of our hearts and how often it is that we want to have it our way, Father, Today we say to you that we don't want to have it our way, we want to have it your way. 
Even as you taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, we, we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray, Father, that that would begin in our own hearts and in our lives and in our family and in this church. That you would have it your way here among us. And Father, would you speak to our hearts that we might trust you, that we might follow you, and obey you in all you have said. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. So as we jump into this story, in chapter 9, we get to meet the king of Israel that they wanted, this man from Benjamin named Saul. And, uh, you know, there are principles that we can take away from basically every character in this story. We can learn some things from Saul in this story. Uh, We can learn some things from Samuel in this story. Uh, We can even learn some things from the people of Israel in this story. But, you know, the main character in every story in the Bible is God himself. He is the main character in, in this story, and he's actually the main character in our stories because he's the main character and the story of the world. And so uh, as we are introduced today to Israel's first king, uh, really I want us to think even more about what we learn about our real king in this story. And so along the way today, I hope we'll discover together five truths that we can learn about our real king in this story. Some of these truths are are truths about who God is, and some of these are truths about what God does. But the first thing we need to see, the, the first truth, is about our king's providence. Our king's providence. After hearing in chapter 8 that the people wanted a king, and after hearing God say that he was going to give them one, when we read this description of this son of Kish named Saul in verses 1 and 2, as the reader, we know right away this is going to be the king. This is the guy. And when you read verse 2, you think, man, this guy really fits the part, doesn't he? Look at verse 2 with me. It says he, that Kish had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. And there was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And so we read this description of a man who was, who was handsome. He was so handsome, in fact, he's called the handsomest man in all of Israel. If they had a GQ magazine, Saul's face would have graced the cover. And the text says he was also something of a giant of a man, that everybody else came up to his shoulders, that he was a full head taller than everybody else. He was the star center on the University of Gibeah's basketball team, if they had had one. And so he seemed to have everything going for him. He had all the physical traits that uh, you might look for in a leader. And you know, Saul's name actually comes from the same root Hebrew word as, as the Hebrew word for ask for. And, and so it's interesting. Saul is literally the king that they asked for. He is a king like all the other nations because he had the qualities that all the other nations probably looked for in their king. Somebody big, and somebody strong, somebody handsome, somebody that was easy for other men to follow. 
And so again, as we read this story, we already have a hunch that this man Saul is going to become the first king of Israel. And so maybe we think that Samuel is just going to show up on his doorstep and ring the doorbell and tell Saul that he's going to become the king or something like that. But instead, in verse 3, this story kind of, for us, takes a little bit of a tangent. We start reading about some lost donkeys, and we wonder what's going on. Look at verse 3. It says, Now the donkeys of Kish... Saul's father were lost. And Kish said to his son, Saul, please take one of the servants with you and arise and go and look for the donkeys. Some lost donkeys may not seem uh, that important to us, but in this uh, culture, in that day, uh, lost donkeys were like lost paychecks. They had to be found. And this was an important job. And so Kish put his big, strong son on it and sends him away with one of his servants on a search and rescue mission for these donkeys. And Saul heads north from his hometown into the mountains of Ephraim. And he checks in several different places that are mentioned there, but he cannot find the donkeys. And so in verse 5, Saul is ready to give up. He's ready to go back home, and he says to his servant, listen, we need to give this up and go home because dad has probably stopped worrying about the donkeys. He's probably started worrying about you and me. We've been gone for for so long now. And so he's ready to, to pack it in. And it's at this point that Saul's servant mentions that they were in the vicinity of where Saul, the prophet of God, the man of God, uh, lived. And he suggests that they should go and find him. He doesn't mention Samuel by name. He calls them a man of God. In verse 9, there's almost a little footnote uh, in a modern book. It might be even a little footnote at the bottom of the page where it says that uh, what was called a prophet at the time this book was written was called a seer in the days of Saul. A seer, somebody because of God's uh, divine empowerment could see into the future. Whether we call them a seer or a prophet or a man of God, we know uh, that whatever name you choose, that Samuel was the man that Saul's servant was talking about. And so he says, let's go and see Samuel. Uh, But then Saul tells his servant, he says in verse 7, listen, we got a problem. And the problem is that Saul had left his wallet uh, back at home. Uh, This was before the days of Western Union. This was before Apple Pay. And uh, and so he says, look, we have nothing to give to the man of God. Apparently it was customary to bring a gift when you came to the man of God, and they had nothing to give. Uh, But then uh, Saul's servant digs around in his uh, duffel bag, and he finds a a little bit of money. And so Saul says, all right then, that's a good idea. Let's go and, and let's see him. And so off they go to find Samuel, to see if Samuel can help them find these lost donkeys. And so in verse 11, they head to the city of Ramah, where Samuel lived. And there, as they're heading into the city, you can picture it in your mind, as they meet some young women who are coming out of the city gates. They were on their way uh, down to collect some water for the day. And as they run into these young women, they ask them, they said, is the seer, is the prophet here? And they said, oh, yes, he is here. In fact, he just came back today. And there's going to be a big sacrifice today. There's going to be a special meal after the sacrifice. And in fact, uh, he's just ahead of you. He just came to town right before you did. And if you hurry, you might catch him. And so they leave the women. And they go on their way into the city. And verse 14 says they literally run right into Samuel, who is on his way out to the high place to offer a sacrifice. There's so much that 
we can take away from these opening verses. But first of all, this is again our first introduction to Saul. And really, there is a mixture of good and bad in what we've seen of Saul so far. On the positive side, again, there are Saul's intangible leadership qualities, his, his height and his good looks. These are things that help Saul to make a good first impression. And while those aren't required, they're certainly things that the Lord can use in a leader. But then also, of course, we see in Saul that there is an obedient heart, uh, at least a, a more obedient heart than we've seen in any of the other sons in this story so far. Uh, when you compare Saul to the wicked sons of Eli the high priest, and when you compare Saul to the wicked sons of Samuel himself, at least Saul, when his dad tells him to go and find the lost donkeys, says yes. And he goes and he does what his dad asks him. He seems to be thoughtful. He seems to be courteous to everyone that he meets. In fact, he is concerned that his dad might be worried if they are gone too long. And so on the whole, so far, things could be worse. On the other hand, there are some warning signs here in these opening verses as well. You know, the first job that we see Saul trying to hold down is the job of a donkey finder. And he really doesn't do such a good job at that, does he? He wanders around for days. He cannot locate his daddy's donkeys. And later in the story, we find out that those donkeys just wandered home on their own without any help from Saul at all. But he's kind of bumbling around, and, and he turns out to be incompetent in the first role that we find him in. And it really raises the question for us, how good a job is he going to do taking care of God's people when he cannot even take care of a pack of donkeys? And also there is the fact that Saul seems to know nothing about who Samuel is. Even though Samuel is God's prophet to the entire nation of Israel, even when he runs into Samuel in the city, he does not recognize him. And, and I don't want to read too much into that, but if nothing else, Saul's failure to recognize this spiritual leader is a picture of the spiritual blindness that Saul will show later on when he becomes king. And then there's also the fact that in this story so far, Saul is not the one who comes up with any of the good ideas in this story. Every good idea in this story doesn't come from Saul. It comes from Saul's servant, right? Saul's servant is the one who suggests maybe we should go and talk to the prophet of God, right? Saul's servant is the one who comes up with the money after uh, Saul doesn't have any and is ready to go home. And so this tall man who very shortly is going to become Israel's leader is really not leading in this story. He is being led every step of the way. And it makes you wonder again, how good a job is he going to do when he is in charge? And of course, if you have read the rest of 1 Samuel, you know the answer to that question. And again, as much as this story is about Saul, it is even more about God. God is the main character. And while we may have thought that up to this point, this was just a story about finding some donkeys, when we come to verse 15, we realize that there is more afoot. Verse 15, it says, Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man. From the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people, because their cry has come 
to me. When you read those words that God said to Samuel, about this time tomorrow, I will send you a man. And that really puts a different light on this entire story up until this point. You realize that everything that has been happening has not just been happening by happenstance, but this was the workings of the sovereign God who was working to send Samuel a man that he had chosen to become the next king. And once you realize that, every detail in this story becomes significant. The lost donkeys. Kish deciding to send Saul instead of someone else to go and find the donkeys. Kish sending not only Saul, but also a servant with Saul. Uh, The servant's suggestion to go find Samuel when Saul was ready to go home. The servant having money when Saul had none. Meeting the women who were coming out of the city at just the right time. And then meeting Samuel at just the right time, literally running right into him. You realize that every detail of this story is because of the sovereign hand of God. That God was doing this. That God was answering Israel's request to give them the king they wanted. And of course, this was a part of God doing something much bigger. It was a part of a bigger story of what God was up to, of giving to the whole world one day another king, his one and only son. But maybe we hear that and we hear the the providence of God in this story, and we think, well, uh, you know, sure, that God was sovereign in this story, and we see his providence in this story, because this story was about Saul, and Saul was a big deal. Saul was the first king of Israel, and so maybe God works like that when it comes to the major characters of the Bible, but when it comes to, to little old me, when it comes to, to my life, it just seems like everything is happening randomly. I really don't see God's sovereignty. I really don't see God's providence at work in my life, and that's when we need to remember that the Bible doesn't say that God is sovereign over some things. The Bible says God is sovereign over all things. That his providence is at work in your life and in my life, even in the seemingly trivial and mundane things of life. Proverbs 16 says this, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And then in Proverbs 20, we read this, A man's steps are of the Lord. How then can a man understand his own way? So the Lord is the one directing our steps. It is his providence that is there guiding us. And of course, as believers, we have the promise that we read in Romans 8, 28, that if we know him, that if we love him and have been called according to his purpose, that he is working all things together for good in our life. The good things and the bad things somehow are coming together as a part of God's perfect plan for us. Of course, one difference potentially between us and Saul is that Saul finds out in a little bit what God was up to through this story and through all the details. But God may never reveal to you and to me in this life what he's up to. He he may choose to not reveal that to us. 
He may choose to not disclose to us the purposes of all of these details of what he is doing in our life. That is his prerogative. He may wait until heaven to reveal those things to us. And if he chooses to do that, if he chooses not to explain to us in this life why all of the twists and the turns of this life have happened, the question is, are we going to continue to trust him? Are we going to continue to follow him? And what do we do in the meantime? What do we do when we don't know why? Well, I would suggest that we keep looking for those donkeys. That we keep doing the things that God has told us to do. That we keep obeying Him. We keep obeying the clear commands of God that He has given us in His Word. That we keep seeking Him. That we keep trusting Him. Because we know that we have a God who is sovereign. And that God's providence is guiding us right where He wants us to go. And we can trust in his providence, church, because God's providence is not a hard, cold, uncaring thing. His providence is a warm, kind providence, is it not? Because the God who leads us step by step is not unseeing, and he's not unfeeling, and he's not uncaring. He is the same God who loves us with a love that is so deep and wide we cannot even fathom it. God's plans for us, the Bible says, are not plans to harm us. They are plans to give us a future and a home. And that's why the next truth that we see in this story is so important. It's the truth about our king's mercy. Our king's mercy. Again, in verse 15, we read that the day before Saul and Samuel met one another, that God had already told Samuel, about this time tomorrow, uh, you're going to meet the one that I have picked to be the king of Israel. And so Samuel is expecting Saul, uh, but of course Saul uh, does not know who Samuel is. But what I really want you to notice is, is the heart of God that comes out Uh, and the reason why he does everything that he does. Look at verse 16. He says, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel. Now listen why. That he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have looked upon my people because their cry has come up to me. Now, we've already said that Israel should not have asked for a king, at least not for the reasons why they asked for a king. They were sinful and wrong to do that. It was sinful and wrong for them to want to be like the other nations so badly when God had already told them that they were supposed to be a different nation from everyone that was all around them. And yet, I love the fact that in this verse, in spite of all of that, God loves his people so much that he wants to help them anyway. And he says to them, I'm giving you this king, even though you shouldn't have asked for this king, I'm giving you this king that he might be my instrument to save you from the hand of your enemies, to save you from the Philistines. And then he says that he's doing this because he sees them, because he hears them, because their cry has come up to his ears. God's mercy is amazing. Even though Israel was being foolish at this time. God's compassion and mercy still meet them right where they are. And you know, the truth is that just like Israel, we are stubborn in our foolish sin. 
But God is more stubborn still about his sovereign plan to show us mercy. Let me say that again. We, we are stubborn in our foolish sin, but God is more stubborn still about his sovereign plan to show us mercy. We see that in the way that he treats Israel here, and we see that in our own lives also. Sometimes we are so stubborn, are we? Sometimes we're so foolish in the way that we return to our sin. We want to have things our way. And we will reap the consequences for that. But for God's people, God's mercy is even more stubborn than our sin. God's grace is greater than all of our sin. God has a plan to show us mercy. And it is a plan that will not be stopped for anything. And again, I love the language in verse 16 where it says that their cry has come up to the Lord. You know, the same is true today. In the same way that the cry of God's people when they were in bondage in Egypt rose up to the Lord. And in the same way that their cry during all those years of the judges rose up to the Lord. In the same way that their cry here in the days of Samuel and Saul rose up to the Lord. Our cries have risen up to the Lord's ears as well. And friend, if you are his, if you know Christ as your Savior, then his ears are attentive to your cries. And whatever is going on in your life right now, whatever you've been crying out to the Lord about, friend, he hears you. And he knows what's in your heart. And he wants to meet you where you are today with his mercy and with his grace. Trust that your king is a better king than King Saul. That he is a king of mercy. You know, picking up the story there in verse 17, again, Samuel is expecting Saul when he sees Saul, God says in his ear, that is the one right there, the one that I told you about yesterday. But again, Saul has no idea who Samuel is. And I think it's pretty funny in verse 18 when he walks up to Samuel and he says to Samuel, which way is it to the seer's house? Right? So think about that, right? He's asking Samuel where he can find Samuel. And I don't know about you, but I kind of wish that Samuel had messed with him a little bit right there. You know, kind of like uh, if you've seen Star Wars, the way that Yoda messes with Luke Skywalker, right? And he says, Yoda, you seek Yoda, right? I will take you to him, right? And then later in a dramatic way, right, he reveals, you know, that he's actually Yoda. I kind of wish that he had done that here, but he doesn't do that. He just says, I am the seer. I guess he had never seen the movie. And, um, and so he says, I'm the one that you're looking for. And he says, I want to invite you to a sacrifice. I want to invite you to a special meal that will follow it. And then even before Saul even asked about the donkeys, Samuel says, don't worry about your donkeys. They've already been found. That wasn't the reason why he was really there. And then at the end of that verse, he gives a hint of things to come. Verse 20, he says, on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on you? And on all your father's house. Now, he doesn't come out and outright say there, you're going to be the, the king. But still, that's a strange thing to have someone say to you if you're Saul. That all the desire, all the hope of Israel is, is set on him. And so, uh, he doesn't know what Samuel is talking about. But whatever it is, he thinks it's too much for him. 
And so he says in verse 21, listen, Samuel, I don't know if you realize this, but, but I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm from the smallest tribe in Israel, and, and that's actually true. And in fact, if you read in the pages of the book of Judges, the tribe of Benjamin doesn't have a wonderful track record. There was a lot of sin that went on in that tribe. It came to the point that actually the other tribes attacked the tribe of Benjamin and almost decimate the tribe of Benjamin. So they are the smallest tribe. They're not the most prestigious tribe. And he says, I think whatever you're talking about, I think you've got the wrong guy. But then Samuel invites him to this feast. He invites him to uh, this meal after the feast, a hall that was filled with 30 people. And I'm sure Saul was surprised when he came into this room and Samuel, the host of this feast, sits Saul in the seat of honor at this feast, as if this whole feast is for him. And then he asked the cook to bring out the, the choicest piece of meat, the thigh, which was the part of the peace offering that really belonged to the priest. It was really Samuel's portion of the offering, but he gives it to Saul as a way of blessing Saul, as a way of honoring Saul. All of this was designed so that Saul could realize that God was calling him to a very important role. And then after a night's sleep, Samuel tells Saul at dawn that he wants to have a private conversation with him. And so they walk down to the outskirts of the city and they send the servant on ahead. And then in verse 27, he says this to Saul, but you stand here a while that I may announce to you the word of God. And the word of God that he had given to Samuel for Saul was something that Saul could not have imagined because in verse 1, Samuel pours oil on Saul's head and anoints him as the first king of God's people and says to him, is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? You know, it's easy to just read right past that and and to not think much of it, but imagine if that were you, right? Imagine if someone knocked on your door tomorrow morning and said to you that you're going to be the next president of the United States, and that would be hard to believe, wouldn't it? But this is actually even harder to believe because we do have presidents and we've had a bunch of presidents, but this role had never even existed, right? They had never even had a king. And yet here was this man of God saying to Saul, you're going to be the king. And we have to keep that context in mind if we're going to understand what happens in the next few verses of chapter 10. Because Samuel gives a list of signs to Saul to help prove to him that the Lord really was calling him to this role, and he really was going to make him king. Look at verse 2. It says, Samuel says to Saul, When you have departed from me today, you will find two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, The donkeys which you went to look for have been found. And now your father has ceased worrying about the donkeys and is worrying about you saying, what shall I do about my son? And then you shall go on forward from there and come to the terebinth tree of Tabor. And there three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall receive from their hands. After that, you shall come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is, and it will happen when you have come there to the city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a stringed instrument, a tambourine, a flute, and a harp before them, and they will be prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. And let it be when these signs come to you that you do as the occasion demands, for God is with you. 
And so in these verses, there are three specific signs that are given to Saul, but really this teaches us a third truth about our king, and that is our king's assurance. Our king's assurance, because that is what the Lord God is trying to do in Saul's life. He's trying to assure him of his call on his life. So he gives him these three signs. He says the first thing that's going to happen is you're going to meet two people, two men, after you leave me, and they're going to say to you verbatim what you said to your servant a little while ago. They're going to say to you, the donkeys have been found, that your dad no longer is worried about the donkeys, and now he's worried about you. That's going to be sign number one. Then he says, you're going to keep walking from there, and you're going to run into three more men. And these men are going to be going down to a sacrifice at Bethel. And he tells them all the supplies that they're going to have in their hands for the sacrifice. And then he tells them they're going to give you uh, two loaves of bread, and you need to receive that from their hand. And then he says, sign number three. This is the most interesting sign of all. He says, you're going to run into a band of traveling musician prophets. These are like Bible-toting beetles. These are like the the, the pentatonic prophets, all right? And they're going to come to you, and they're going to be playing, and they're going to be singing, but also they're going to be prophesying. And when you meet them, the Spirit of God is going to come upon you, and you're going to join the band. And you're going to start playing. You're going to start singing. You're going to start prophesying. And that's going to be the third sign to you. This was an interesting day for Saul, to say the least. But verse 7 tells us what the whole point of it was. It says, when all this happens to you, when the signs come to you, that you do as the occasion demands. In other words, you do what God has called you to do. And then he said, this is what I want you to know, that God is with you. That's the main thing that God wanted Saul to know, that what he had called him to do was not something that he had to do on his own, that God would be with him. And you know, we have the same assurance today, don't we? We have that same assurance, that if we know him, he is with us. And I don't know for each of us specifically what God has called you to do, what he's put in your hand to do at this season of your life. But I do know this. I do know that he wants you to remember the words of Joshua when he said, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And so, friend, whatever it is that God has put in front of you to do, know that you do it with his presence. And also you do it with his power. And that's the next truth that we need to see, the truth about our king's empowering. Let's pick up the story where we left off in verse 8 and see what happens next. Verse 8 says, You shall go down before me to Gilgal, and surely I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices and peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you should do. And so it was when he had turned his back to go from Samuel that God gave him another heart. And all those signs came to pass that day. And when they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him. Then the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied among them. And it happened when all who knew him formally saw that he indeed prophesied among the prophets, that the people said to one another, What is this that has come upon the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And then a man from there answered and said, But who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? And when he had finished prophesying, he went to the high place. You know, I think verse 9 is especially important when it says that when Saul left Samuel, that God gave him another heart. And if you look up at verse 6, remember it said there that the Spirit of the Lord would come upon him, that he would be turned into another man. So there was a change that was going to happen in Saul's life. 
But I do want to say this. I, I don't really think that in Saul's case that what was happening here was what we would think of as a conversion experience. I don't really believe that this is like Ezekiel 36, where it says that God will take our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. I really don't think this is like John chapter 3, where Jesus taught about being born again, because I don't think that's what happens in Saul's life. Because what is the evidence, what is the test of any spiritual experience with the Lord? How do you know if a person has been truly converted or not? Jesus taught that you know them by their fruit that you know whether that's happened or not, with whether or not you see any lasting change in the person's life. Does a person really repent? Do they really begin to live a changed life? Is there any evidence of their salvation experience? And as you read on in Saul's story, the answer to that question is clearly no. And friend, what about you? You know, as you examine your own life, do you know for certain that God has given you a new heart? Do you know for certain that God has put his spirit within you? Do you know for certain that you will be with the Lord if you should die today? Or is it possible that you have merely had a religious or a spiritual experience, but you've never really met the Lord? I think that's an important question. You know, what I do think was going on in Saul's life here when it uses this language of giving him a new heart is the fact that God was empowering him with the person of the Holy Spirit, empowering him for a special role for God's people. And remember in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit operated differently than the Holy Spirit does in the New Testament. Unlike now, where the Spirit of God comes to live within every believer and will never leave us, In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit of God would come upon a man or come upon a woman and empower them for a season of time for a unique role that they had. Think about Bezalel and the work that he did for the tabernacle. It says the Spirit of God empowered him to do that work. The Spirit of God came upon Samson to do the mighty deeds that he did in the book of Judges. And here, the Spirit of God comes upon Saul. But also, we're going to read in a few chapters that the Spirit of God that comes upon Saul here leaves Saul. And comes to rest on a little shepherd boy named David. And so as we read here, what we're reading about is not an unending transformation, but what we're reading about is a temporary empowering of a servant of God to do a work for God. But the principle is so simple and so important for us. When God calls us to do something, God empowers us by His Spirit to do it. And that truth is, is really even more so for us than it was for Saul. Because again, when we come to know Christ, God gives us his spirit and he never takes his spirit away. Every Christian is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God, the spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, lives inside of you. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples right before he ascended in Acts chapter 1. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And church, God has given us the same task today, to be his witnesses. And he has given us the same power. 
The Holy Spirit has come upon you and upon me. The Holy Spirit is in you. And you and I have everything that we need to do what God has called us to do, to be who God has called us to be. And hopefully that's a great encouragement to you and I today as we seek to live out the call of God in our life. So far we've seen God's providence. We've seen God's mercy. We've seen God's assurance. We've seen God's empowerment. But there's one more thing we need to see about our king, and that's our king's secret. Our king's secret, because that's really how this part of the story ends. It ends with a secret. You look at verse 14. After Saul returned home, Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, where did you go? And so he said to look for the donkeys. When we saw that they were nowhere to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, well, tell me, please, what Samuel said to you. And so Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom... He did not tell him what Samuel had said. And so what he says back to his uncle is true. He told us that the donkeys have been found, but he kind of leaves out the most important part, right? He kind of leaves out the whole part about a jar of oil being poured on his head and Samuel saying to him that you're going to be the king of Israel. He kind of buries the lead. We don't know all the reasons for why Saul does that. But what we do know is that at this point, only three people know that Saul is going to be king. Samuel, Saul, and God. Now next week, it will become common knowledge. The private anointing that happens here will become a public coronation. But for now, it's, it's a secret. And you know, that reminds me of Jesus' ministry, because many times in Jesus' ministry, after he would work a miracle or After he would give a teaching, he would oftentimes say something like this. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. You know, that was always kind of confusing for me when I would read across verses like that in the Gospels because I thought, you know, aren't we supposed to be doing that, right? Aren't we supposed to be going out telling people about Jesus? And why is Jesus going around telling people, shh? Right? Keep that a secret. Don't tell anybody what I just did for you. And until someone showed me that the fact that as you read through the Gospels, that there is a, a timeline, a divine timeline for everything. And that until Jesus' time had come, until Jesus' hour was upon him, there were things that needed to happen. There were things that needed to take place before the hour came, before the time came, when everybody would know that Jesus was the Messiah and when Jesus would die on the cross for our sins. And so for a short time, it was a secret. Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. But friends, the good news is It's not a secret anymore. We know that Jesus is our king, that he is the king of kings, that he is the Lord of lords. And you know, three weeks from today on Palm Sunday, we will celebrate the day that Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem as king. And you know, it's interesting. Do you remember what Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem on? A donkey. When we first meet King Saul, he can't find his donkeys. (laughs) But when all Israel met King Jesus, he came riding into town on a donkey, a donkey that, by the way, he told his disciples would be exactly where they found it. Jesus is our better King Saul, and he is better than Saul in every way. 
As one person said, while Saul was outwardly impressive, he was inwardly incompetent. Whereas with Jesus, he was outwardly unimpressive. In fact, Isaiah tells us that there was nothing about him, nothing about his appearance that would have drawn you to him. And yet he was God in the flesh, full of majesty, full of power, full of grace and truth. It is not a secret, church. Jesus is the king. The question is, do you know this king? Do you know the king who made you? The king who loves you? The king who died for you? And the king who rose again? I hope you do. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this story about a king that points us to a better king. Father, we thank you for the king that you are. A king that is sovereign over every detail in our lives. A king that is so merciful to us that even though we are stubborn in our foolishness and our sin, Father, you're more stubborn still in showing us mercy and grace. That's greater than all of our sin. Father, we stand in awe of your mercy today, of who you are, of your plan, a secret plan that has now become public. That salvation is to be found in one name and one name alone, the name of Jesus. Father, I pray for anyone here that hasn't met your son Jesus, and I pray that they would meet him today, and I ask it in Jesus' name.